Wormholes are produced by Trillium Technologies, the organization that nine years ago founded and currently runs NASA FDL and FDL Europe with ESA, the European Space Agency. FDL industry partners include Google Cloud, NVIDIA, and others. Thank you, Trillium, for hosting these series. Uh, today, we are joined by uh, a well-known Silicon Valley venture capitalist and, and a very good personal friend, Steve Jurvetson, founder of Future Ventures. We're so happy that you could be here as part of our Business of Space, Space as an Economic Destination series. Of course, last week we hosted uh, another friend, Andy Aldrin, a uh, friend of yours as well, Steve. Uh, and next week we will be uh, hosting uh, someone special. As a matter of fact, let's start out by jumping over here. Next week we'll be hosting Erica Wagner. Uh, Erica is from Blue Origin. And uh, another old friend, I shouldn't say old friend, that's a terrible way to say it, another friend for many years, doing incredible work at Blue, and I think you're not going to want to miss that. That'll be next Wednesday, as a matter of fact, um, on January 31st. Now, we typically do these at 9 a.m. Pacific time next week with Erica. Note the time is 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern time, and you can do the math for your other time zones, 4 p.m. GMT, et cetera. So please join us next week at 8 a.m. Wednesday, January 31st for Dr. Erica Wagner. This week, Steve Jurvetson, we're so happy to have him and we're so fortunate that he's doing this from his office because we're going to talk a little bit about some of those things that are behind him there. Um, what you're looking at as part of Steve's collection, uh, it is it is phenomenal. I have seen it grow over the years, uh, and it's so exciting. Every time I go, I have a great time just seeing what new things you have or new ways of talking about some of the things that you've had because you, you're constantly like a museum curator. You are learning more and more about these incredible artifacts that you've been collecting over the years. So, Steve, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We're appreciative of your time. Uh, I know everyone's going to want to ask some questions by the time we finish this, so we will open things up for Q&A uh, near the end of this session. What we would ask you to do is please put your questions in the chat. Uh, obviously, when we have this many people, a lot of people ask very similar questions. So Kat from the team here, she will be curating our Q&A session in chat. And she will call on you to ask your question. So put your questions in chat at the end. Catherine will go through. She will uh, say your name and ask you to, at that time, unmute and ask your question. We do ask that you do not unmute at all during Steve's time with us today. Just stay on mute and hold your questions until the very end or even your comments or anything else you might want to do. We want to keep the uh, audio crisp and clear for this today. Thanks for your cooperation for that. Okay, uh, Steve, happy to see you. I know you're only a few miles away from me right now in the physical world. We have people from all over the world joining us here today who I know are excited to hear from you. First things first, let's talk about that. Uh, well, first of all, you do know this is called the Wormhole Series. And yes, one I, of the first well, I've things- I've come to see that now. I, it looks like there's a representation here on the screen. Exactly. Right. Uh, so uh, the first thing he did when he jumped on this morning was saying, oh, I didn't think about this, but perhaps I have something that speaks to wormholes. 
he stepped off camera and came right back. And Steve, show us your wormhole. So my, yeah, so my son gave me this for Christmas. It, it, you know, it has the kind of funnel look to it. And uh, let me show you what it does. For anyone who's seen it, this will be a boring reminder. But for those who don't, uh oh, let's see here. It uh, seems like it uh, power off. <laughs> well, so so of course it's like you know the the marbles swirl around. And then they just keep jumping over and over and over again. And, you know, for for some, this is like instantly fascinating if they haven't seen it before. Others disappointingly are blase about it. Um, I find it to be a wonderful touch point for explaining what's going on here, especially when it goes on for hours, you know, at a time. So you we'll get anything done. Uh, yeah, unless you want <laughs> you to stare at it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, you know, let's... Um, Marbles are now flying everywhere. Uh, I think I'll turn it off just so I don't get distracted by it. Of course, yeah. of course. So uh, you know, I was just there with you in, in your office a couple of weeks ago and brought a special guest with me, and we looked at the artifacts. Let's have you talk about the collection broadly. Sure. And uh, then there are two artifacts specifically I will ask you about after you've talked about this and, and how how did this all start? How did you become obsessed with having things connected to space and space exploration? Well, that's an interesting question. So, yes, uh, as Jonathan's referencing, I have turned our office into a space museum. I can't show you everything, but I can like lift it and just show that every square inch of every wall, the ceilings are covered with artifacts from the Apollo era, typically uh, mostly U.S., some Russian and it's a and some meteorites. It's a, it's a bit out of control. So all those rings you see behind me are slices of meteorite from the moon, from Mars, from even more interesting stories. If you can believe there are more interesting stories than that out there in our um, solar system. And uh, this collection has all come together in the last twelve to thirteen years. I wasn't an obsessive collector before, uh, but there was an auction a friend pointed me to that was selling a artifact that was part of the Apollo sixteen Orion lunar module. So this is a piece of the spacecraft, critical, it's called a crewman optical alignment site, used for docking and undocking, and it was available for sale. So it blew my mind that it was possible for a private citizen to own a piece of the lunar module that was on the moon. Um, that still blows my mind, uh, and for a few reasons, you know, it was there for like three days. It was brought back contrary to protocol, meaning, uh, you know, John Young specifically smuggled it back to keep it as a keepsake and then eventually put it up for auction. And, you know, if we fast forward to today, I now have a piece of every lunar module that's been on the moon um, and equivalent flown artifacts from the Mercury program and, and Gemini and what have you. So it's uh, it's gotten a little out of control. <laughs> to say the <laughs> there there are uh, not just every wall, <laughs> but every surface that can right. support a thing has something on it. And you have giant rocket engines. In yes. the collection as well, RL10, that, which uh, is still the you know the bellwether for United Launch Alliance, and uh, an SPS engine for the command module, uh, X15 rocket engine, a lot of you know big iron. Now you have um, a couple of things here that uh, I'm going to ask about. Let's go to this. So uh, this is a special <laughs> guest I brought with me, who, by the way, had said to me, "You know, making rockets is easy. All you have to do is get a bunch of little." He's six get a bunch of pipes and wires and put them together. We walk into your office and he sees them. And he goes, see, Jonathan, 
pipes and wires. That's all you have to do to build a rocket engine. And so he has this great mindset towards what it means. But what what is he looking at right here? And by the way, you say meteorites. You have meteorites, like a lot of meteorites, including the largest piece of the moon that's on planet Earth. Oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far because Not, it's very important. Okay. It's, it's, but it's a good prompt. Um, the vast majority of moon rocks on Earth will never be known to us, and they're at the bottom of the ocean because meteorites hit ah. geographically randomly. Most of them will end up in a body of water, and there's no remote detection to say, oh, at a distance, I can have like the equivalent of a metal detector that says, ooh, that's a moon rock, because it looks unfortunately so similar. And you have to do an isotope analysis and look at oxygen ratios of oxygen 17 to 16 and such to, to prove something's from the moon or from Mars or what have you. And uh, and so uh, I do have the largest slice of moon rock, um, but the only reason I had that qualifier is no one sliced the moon rocks that are at the bottom of the ocean. So I can make a definitive claim about that, whereas I can't claim. Okay, so I'm getting I, old. I love your thing. accuracy. Right. I love but it. Your, uh, your relative is actually, uh, his, <laughs> his left arm is near a pretty big moon rock on the corner of the desk, but in front of him is an enormous rock from the asteroid Vesta, or four Vesta, which is the second largest asteroid in the, in the, um, in the asteroid belt. It comprises about 9% of the mass of the asteroid belt. And it was large enough to have enough gravity in its early formation to have a differentiation of a, what was a molten core, a mantle, and a crust. And uh, interestingly, we now know from the Dawn spacecraft that was in orbit around uh, Vesta for a year, that it was uh, it's older than Earth itself. It was formed in the first 10 million years of our solar system, which means it's ancient. And it uh, suffered about a billion years ago, a massive cataclysmic kaboom, you know, a big bada boom, as they say, uh, which ejected an enormous amount of mass in a variety of places. It then got into a Jupiter synced orbit and some of that randomly much later flung towards Earth. That's why we have a, a fair bit of Vesta on Earth. But it gives us a, a peak in almost like a time capsule into the early formation of our solar system. Uh, into, especially if you broaden the discussion to some of the chondrites, you know, really pristine samples from our early days. But this one, uh, just one last point about it that's kind of fascinating. The, the thing that ejected it from Vesta was such an enormous collision that it left a crater 90% of the diameter of Vesta and a sort of, you know, like when you drop milk, a uh, droplet of milk and you do a freeze frame photo and there's a sort of spike up the middle. Well, there is a depth of the crater at Vesta that is twice as tall as Mount Everest, just to give a sense of scale. So imagine a fairly small body, but with an Everest-sized crater hole. Um, and uh, and again, yeah, so there's all around the office, you know, I'll just show you one more example. Yeah, this is Mars. It's fairly big Mars rock. Uh, it contains trapped atmosphere inside, which matches the Martian atmosphere, but it sort of looks a lot like what you see going around Mars. So this is one of the one of the larger, not the largest, but one of the largest Mars rocks on Earth. And uh, it's just fascinating to be able to hold something like that in your hand and be like, wow. It's, it's astonishing. <laughs> so those are natural things. One, I, you know, I thought it was great years ago when I got to hold Buzz Aldrin's flashlight from his spacewalk. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, that's cool. But yeah, um, a few months ago, I got to hold this. Tell us about this amazing piece of, uh, of this amazing artifact that you have in your collection. It, it, is, it is it is a singularly amazing piece, I have to say. This uh, came directly from Charlie Duke, and I did a long interview with him about the artifact. He used it extensively, um, uh, you know, on his mission uh, on the moon in Apollo 16, and he uh, used it to take samples. He used it to prop himself up uh, when he just wanted to take a cool photo and lean on something or to actually balance himself almost like a walking stick um, when he was lifting the largest, uh, largest moon rock, actually, the Apollo program to bring it back. 
uh, it is this scoop at the part you're holding with your right hand um, clips, uh, and then you can, it can it can pivot, and uh, you can either be at a right angle or straight down. It was used to take rock samples all over the place, you know, from under larger uh, boulders, and you know, obviously surface regolith and what have you. And uh, it's another example of the kinds of things that were brought back, you know, the contrary to protocol, and by just de facto sort of de facto policy at the time left with the astronauts who smuggled them back. Uh, and it wasn't until an uh, act of Congress during the Obama administration that what, what originally was barely legal is now fully legal, that anything left in the possession of Apollo astronauts is their property to do with whatever they want. That is now actually an act of Congress it took to make that clear. Um, but it's been the de facto policy for years. In any case, so this thing kind of blows my mind. And he you know, himself thinks it's one of the most significant artifacts brought back from the Apollo program that, you know, was used extensively and photographed extensively on the lunar surface. Absolutely phenomenal. There's video on YouTube of him using that particular piece that you can see Charlie scooping up moon rocks and using it, as you said, to steady himself. That's right. Yeah. Great. So, you know, as an example, hey, you picked a couple interesting ones. Every artifact has a story. They're heroic periods of human exploration. And I try my best to collect as many stories as I can about them and share that on Flickr and wherever, which is my video, uh, it's my photo blog. Um, but it, to me, that's what gets, you know, that's the point of this it, as a curator and as a collector is you know, what are the incredible stories behind each of these artifacts? Nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey. Um, uh, growing up, immigrant parents in Texas, uh, uh, you and I worked at Apple at about the same time decades ago. Uh, you were at Next. Uh, you went to Stanford. Tell us a little bit about, just for a couple minutes, that journey uh, that you were on to get you to where you are today, both with your uh, investments in space and other things, as well as uh, just who you are. <laughs> well, that's a that's a tough question. That could be a very long In two answer, minutes. Uh, <laughs> and, and it may reflect... Differing levels of self-awareness on what really was seminal in my life. Uh, you know, we all think we understand our random walk, but sometimes it's just a random walk. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I did uh, live in Texas for 12 years, went to Johnson Space Center for a camp once. So I was trying to think about formative childhood moments. Um, but the Apple II came around around some seventh grade onward. Uh, I became much more smitten with computer science. In fact, there's an Apple II motherboard I recently just wanted to get from eBay to have it at my side and remind myself of all the little memory chips I put in there. Um, and how it was, you know, touched on for the imagination for a young child like me. So I went on studied electrical engineering and computer design, started a PhD actually in electrical engineering long ago, but didn't finish it, worked in chip design at Hewlett Packard. Um, as you mentioned, product marketing at Apple and Next briefly, I uh, wanted to see my childhood heroes, Steve Jobs in action. That was the motivation. Um, and, uh, but wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. I, was, I didn't want to be an engineer. I didn't think in perpetuity, at least I couldn't see doing that for 20 years. I didn't really get smitten with product marketing. And then randomly, um, when I was at business school, connected with someone who was in this field called venture capital that I literally knew nothing about. I'd never met a venture capitalist in my life until that point. And uh, anyway, my long story short, did a crash thing of interviews, ended up at a very entrepreneurial small firm called Draper Associates that eventually became DFJ, still going, DFJ Growth Fund uh, is going strong. <laughs> but uh, it's been 28 years actually uh, of venture capital that I've done now. So I'm an old fart in that regard. Never thought I would stick with any job for more than 20 years. And, and the beauty is I can imagine doing this for the next 28 years too, because it keeps changing, right? The sectors we invested in the nineties were completely different from the last 20 years, right? It was basically software, biotech, and, um, in, in computing in some sense, like semiconductors specifically, that was like it, that was what venture capitalists invested in. And then obviously changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And that 
makes it a lot more exciting and much more uh, dramatic. The the scope of, of ambition that entrepreneurs have and their ability to change the world for the better is now reaching into every industry, not just these IT sectors. So um, those investments have spanned a variety of things, from, you know, from Tesla to nuclear fusion to a variety of things. And of course, in the space domain, it's been primarily, and you might find this interestingly, uh, I've only issued term sheets, meaning made an offer to invest in three space companies, uh, SpaceX, Planet Labs, and then one that uh, had a very unusual name at the time, I think it was like World Something, uh, I'll have to find the exact name, but it was basically what eventually became Starlink. Um, as a, you know, There was initially, it was a business within Google's uh, halls that was being incubated, if you will, or developed within Google. And I, you know, it was the, the last thing I've gotten excited enough to say, yes, I want to invest in this. Um, and uh, I, I can tell you why that is later if you want, but uh, but that's basically how I've gotten to where I am here today. And um, and so, yeah, at Future Ventures, which is the firm I'm sitting in, you know, we're about five years old and we invest in basically crazy ideas is, would be the whimsical way of saying it, but, you know, big ideas that if they succeed, history books would be written about them. That's kind of a pretty audacious goal to set for any company. Um, and ideally in areas that are unlike anything we've seen before. So looking for novelty, looking for breakthrough ideas that are unlike scores of other companies that we are, might be aware of that are out there. And you have a partner at the yes. future? Yes. Mariana Sanko, yeah. who I worked with at DFJ before. So she and I were kind of a pair. We looked at everything that was considered deep tech or hard tech. So all the weird stuff was the two of us. And then the rest of the firm was enterprise software, consumer internet, the usual stuff, right? What the vast majority of VCs uh, focus on. So we were kind of like a weird pair off doing our own things and having fun doing it. But, you know, frankly, spending most of our time uh, at partners meetings, having to look at all the other stuff, it's a lot less interesting to us. You know, people interested in the history of, and, uh, and, you know, Steve, you know, having, I used to work for Steve Jobs at Apple and Steve would say something that Bob Noyce would say, you know, you can't know what's going on now unless you understand what's going on now, unless you knew what came before. And of course the Draper name for those interested in history, go back and start looking into uh, that whole clan uh, going back a hundred, almost a hundred years now. And, uh, and their involvement <laughs> in economics around the world and, and World War II and post-World War II and just an First interesting read for those. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. A phenomenal place for you to land. <laughs> That's my reason for bringing that up um, uh, to get started with this. Um, you did mention Tesla. You do have that license plate uh, over your shoulder right now, Tesla S1. Yeah, I do that all the time. Wrong one. So tell us about that license plate real quick. Oh, sure. That was, uh, I saved the front license plate. The car itself is now in the Peterson Automotive Museum. Uh, I just donated it a few months ago, but it's the very first Model S uh, sold, right? The first production car, uh, which is just incredible to have. And that was my primary car for a few years. It, uh, I, I knew it was going to be a historic vehicle, kind of like maybe arguably more important than the Model T, uh, which came before it long, long before in terms of, you know, obviously now it should be obvious to others, you know, catalyzing decades before it otherwise would have happened the inevitable shift to electric vehicles. So um, nice. to this Peterson Museum in LA. Nice, nice. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, technologies and emerging technologies. I'm curious about your thoughts. I think others are as well. On what do you think some of the exciting, most important um, technologies currently uh, available and what are the most exciting things in development or that we need to see get in development for us to uh, to pursue an off-world future? 
Ah, okay. The first part of the question was very broad. There's a lot going on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. and maybe I'll give a broad nod uh, to that without, but not spend too much time on it and then, then try to tie it to the space features and, and exploration. So th there is though an interesting point, which is I think SpaceX specifically in the aerospace domain and Tesla specifically in the automotive domain have inspired folks in a lot of domains, other industries to realize the changes afoot, that it is possible to reinvent traditionally stayed, a static, fairly uninteresting industries. I'm, uh, if you look back at the prior 50 years and say how much really innovative change and disruptive change had occurred in, in either category, um, uh, it looks re relatively squalid compared to now. And now it's just like just rippling with innovation, right? And downstream innovation that comes from, you know, not just what can an electric vehicle do, but how about autonomous driving? And not just what can lower cost launch do, but how about low cost constellations and et cetera. You know? So... Uh, so, you know, we're broadly agriculture, energy, construction, for example, pretty boring industries. If you say, you know, how much has changed in the last 100 years? How radically different are any of those sectors? In fact, in some cases, uh, go, they've gone backwards in productivity, in construction in particular. Um, but imagine a software-centric product in the future. Okay, so that's one big thing. So we are investing across all those domains. Another ripple through that is you know, infrastructure that helps make all these areas more productive. So AI in particular jumps to mind. You could imagine the car is a vehicle for AI. The rocket is, of course, a fully autonomous vehicle. Every subcomponent uh, or subsystem of uh, SpaceX is a fully autonomous vehicle, right? From each fairing half to the ships that pick them up to the Dragon capsule, you know, they're all fully autonomous vehicles, or maybe an obvious point, but imagine how much harder it would be without compute and without uh, the cutting edge of simulation on one hand for product design and, you know, uh, control systems um, in terms of the final implementation. So uh, a lot of opportunity to shift the value from physical things to code. Yeah, you know, dematerialization of value to the software stack and the services stack, like we saw with the iPhone, like we saw with the Tesla vehicle, like we see with the SpaceX rocket and Launchpad. Frankly, don't forget the Launchpad, um, and uh, and I'll imagine that rippling through all parts of the economy. So, uh, specifically, how that might relate to our future in space? You think you know AI? Think you know direct space vehicles? Think food, right, and uh, other human biology related things like the way in which we grow food. For, for example, in the future on Mars will not be cattle and pigs. It'll probably be you know, mycelium, I believe, to start for a large amount of our meat-like uh, protein sources, things that can actually remediate toxins in their in their growth, um, not just... You know, if any, put it this way, if anything was going to grow in Martian regolith as is, my bet would be on fungi or a lichen, not anything else to start. You, know, you could, of course, remediate everything first, but um, you might also just go for it like it is. So, but I digress. So, you know, food, radiation shielding, you know, there's a lot of biology we still need to understand of human reproduction in various gravity wells. Uh, we'll get to that later. Um, but there's just so much to do. If I look at space in general, uh, and maybe this can allude to the uh, point I hinted at, you know, why we not invested in 40 other space companies, is that we're somewhat cursed by the abundance of proposals that come our way. So for any really good idea that I could name right now, we've probably seen five to 10. And in some cases, like small launch, I wouldn't say these are all good ideas, but some categories like small sat launch vehicles, you know, 200 different proposals. <laughs> it's, it's, right. uh, it, we're looking for uniqueness or, you know, our simple filter keeps us from what might be a good category, but is overcrowded. And, and overcrowded for us is, oh yeah, there's five companies doing it. That's overcrowded, right? It's not most investors wouldn't say that. Most investors would say, hey, I got to see at least five companies to know if a sector is real and I'll try to pick the winner in that sector. That's a different strategy than ours. So for that reason alone, um, we've seen a lot. And so therefore we haven't invested in much. 
which is kind of ironic. Uh, but I guess it's excited, speaking with a bit of detachment, that there's a remarkable number of explorations going on in Earth observation, in different communication modalities, you know, Starlink and things like it. Um, Earth observation, I think even most people on the call know, but you know, not just optical, but of course, everything from SAR to you know, carbon mapping and methane tracking to you know, and a bunch of new things coming, new missions launching this year um, that are going to look at the oceans and phytoplankton in entirely new ways. It's just our ability to understand planet Earth goes up dramatically in, in you know, space-based assets are probably one of the biggest boons to the environmental uh, understanding. And Earth observation is one of the things that we do a lot of, and a lot of our PhDs who are on the call today are involved in the earth observation side of things as well. And of course you invested in planet who is a leader in democratizing, if that's the right word, uh, earth observation. Exactly. And, and, and I think they made maybe obvious that we have an opportunity now to do things we couldn't easily do before, like raster scan the whole earth every day. You had Landsat, but not quite the same resolution here. You got this raster scan. Now so much data in the time series that you want to run a vector model on top of that to do analyses, to look up, you know, things like this, you know, find me everything that looks like this, find me all the examples, you, you name it. You want to do data-driven queries and process data set in very rich ways that are just now coming to market. So I think we're at the very early days of making use of the tsunami of data that they've been collecting and, and others, of course. Do you have any expectation of other um, upcoming, especially uh, space-related um, things that you uh, will expect to see being overcrowded? Oh, overcrowded. Overcrowded. Like things that yeah, you can imagine. Well, okay. you know, so that's going to be me, overcrowded. Let me re reemphasize that overcrowded for me doesn't mean overcrowded for the market necessarily. It doesn't Certainly. Mean overcrowded yes. For most okay. So, uh, so right. almost any good idea is going to get overcrowded pretty quickly unless there's some proprietary, like in other words, if it's um, an AI company, unless there's a proprietary data feed no one else has, then others are going to copy whatever you're doing, right? So there's, you can say, am I middleware or am I at the edge? Um, uh, there are certain games, if you will, or certain markets that are so capital intensive that there'll be a few players by structural definition. So space tourism comes to mind, um, space exploration on other worlds or, you know, Mars and moon. It's not as if every, not as if we're gonna have 20 different companies immediately going after that fully funded and executing. Um, so there'll be some just capital intensive, natural concentrations, if you will, um, but those are also tightly government linked and therefore have all kinds of other questions as to, you know, who's going to win in that category. So sometimes we avoid investment sectors when it's just going to be, you know, the government's going to knight someone as a winner and we don't know who that is yet. So, you know, an early, like an early stage lunar lander is a great idea. I just don't know how to pick a winner at this point. Right. Like how, how would you know which one's going to, is going to succeed? So, um, I mean, and, and, and I say that not because the answer isn't knowable. It's just, I'm ignorant. I, mean, I just I just have ignorance. I've not dug into that. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at it, but I could I could have spent some time on it. Maybe the answer could be had. And and some investors clearly can get confidence that they found the winner um, or the couple winners. Okay, so um, you know what I wonder about is uh, where are things that people haven't thought of yet. So sometimes, so think about like in the early days of space investment, it was like, okay, the cost of launch is coming way down. What does that enable that wasn't formally possible, right? So you have launch costs coming down and you also have computational capacity going up. So Moore's law is the other assumption I'd make for the next 10, 20 years. The confluence of those two was like, oh, constellations of almost disposable satellites is like a new thing that you wouldn't have thought of when launch costs were high and computation was expensive. So the whole concept of Planet Labs unfolds from those preamble factors. And, you know, we're in the beginning of that transition to large constellations of low earth orbit satellites replacing very expensive 20 year lifetime geosip geobirds doing trying to do something similar um but where 
so you think about it, low cost launch enables a whole you know ecosystem of stuff. We're just beginning to see that, as I mentioned. But then what might come next? So what does you know broadband everywhere on Earth enable? There's a whole bunch of businesses that haven't formed yet, right? We may or may not pursue these as investments, but my gosh, the if you could have you know connectivity everywhere, not only does every drone get a lot more intelligent, every spacecraft in flight from point to point and what have you, um, every aircraft, every maritime asset, every remote industrial asset. Uh, I'll give you a random example. We've not invested in this, but it just sort of gets you thinking, okay, if you have connectivity everywhere, what could you do that might've been hard to do before? And so think about all of the stranded uh, uh, methane that gets flared off because it's too expensive to build a pipeline to these places. Um, compressing it is too energy intensive having trucks going back and forth. And what would you do with a random, you know, flaring methane out in the middle of nowhere? Well, you could put a data center, a small one, right? Right size to just generate energy off that run some data center. Well, it's useless if it's sitting out there. Well, let's start like now it's connected. And they're actually, interestingly, uh, to the punchline, there's a company that, that there are many different companies we've met with that are trying to make use of stranded methane. You know, what can you do with it? Well, how can you create value from methane, right? Because you don't want to just outgas it and even burning it produces CO2. So like, is there something creative you can do with it? Well, Bitcoin mining, it turns out, <laughs> is one of the best paybacks <laughs> right now. I mean, I don't like it just for fundamental reasons. Yeah. Like, but uh, what an intriguing way to make use of a stranded asset, just do bit mining, Bitcoin mining and send data, you know, data feeds back up um, with remote links. Um, so, you know, a lot of machine to machine, small data feeds, making everything a bit more intelligent, you know, AI infused into everything. Imagine all the things that Earth observation satellites could do better if they had a world map on deck, right? So once Moore's Law gets it, so you could store a local map, only look at diffs and only capture diffs. If you're looking at open ocean, only capture the ships, not the, the water itself, unless unless you actually have sensors that are looking at plankton. Um, so there's just still a lot more to be done, right? And I think the confluence of Moore's Law and lower launch costs, which by the way, are you know still have another 100x to go lower, right? We're like, we haven't even begun to see how low they can go. Um, yeah. Starship. So imagine the science we can do. Imagine the payloads we can put up there. I, I am going to do a plug here. Just not, I have a good reason for doing this plug because I think it's meaningful for this topic. Okay. Um, and Kath, Catherine, uh, if you could, or Jody, if you could please put a link to the um, Earth Systems Predictability Report. It's a 178 page report that we did for the European Space Agency just a couple months ago. And it, in 178 pages goes through uh, in detail a lot about combining Earth observation with um, uh, physics-informed machine learning and uh, decision intelligence. Uh, so at, at a really nice example of what you're talking about, tying all these things together, uh, using uh, a massive Earth observation system to make better uh, predictions for all kinds of things, uh, climate, flooding, fires, pick your thing better on earth. And that uh, reminds me that I'm curious about your thoughts on doing these things to make things better down here. So doing space to make things better here on earth, the place we evolved on uh, after almost 4 billion years. Um, what are your thoughts on on that space for uh, space for good for the masses down here on planet earth. Yeah. Well, I think it has been the case from the beginning that that is the, you know, the truism and that, you know, embedded perhaps when the question is some who might ask, why are we spending money on space when we have, you know, pressing problems? Yes. On earth? And, and a that, lot of money on space. Exactly. <laughs> that, that sort of question I think poses a false dichotomy. Um, the, 
there's probably very little that has inspired the environmental movement more than the images of the pale blue dot from a distance, you know, come that follows the 17 shots. Our good friend Stuart Brand and the whole exactly. earth and him catalog, complaining before you know, that. Why haven't we exactly. seen a picture of this yet? <laughs> the most reproduced photo ever. Yep. Excuse me. And then more recently, when you think about um, what you alluded to, the ability to understand what's happening on planet Earth, to measure reservoir levels, to look at uh, vegetation. Soon, Planet Labs is going to release an index. Uh, I think it's going to be mid this year. That's a daily count of all trees on Earth. How many trees on Earth? Like literally, there are a lot more than we thought, actually, uh, by a huge margin. But where are they? You know, where are they growing? Where are they being deforested and having a real-time metric? You have all kinds of different um, hyperspectral and other uh, uh, measurement modalities to look at specific things like methane, right? And oh boy, isn't that going to be interesting when we see not only leaks that could be fixed, right, in pipelines, which are enormous, but let's look at those cattle yards. Let's look at those pig farms and uh, and actually have an AB comparison, not an AB, but sort of like, you know, global stats, including all of the places on the planet that may not want to have this publicly known. Um, it's going to be an interesting way to both, you know, discover and shame the, the methane emitters on planet Earth. So Carbon Mapper and a bunch of others are doing that. There's another European satellite, several coming, even even uh, private, I'm talking about new models in space, even uh, Environmental Defense Fund uh, is building and launching, you know, a satellite and they're obviously outsourcing its production, but, you know, fundraising and building a, a methane sat, pretty interesting. Uh, so yes, everything from crop health to Planetary health, the old adage from, I think it was Andy Grove, that you can't manage what you don't measure. Uh, if we are ignorant about what's happening on Earth, how would we you know, possibly know what impact certain things have? And oh boy, there's a lot to learn about the oceans um, uh, at all depths, right? So uh, there'll be a, a lot of information. It's not, again, it's not information that we'll, we'll need uh, data analytics to process that make sense of. But it will, I think, be more important to, you know, life on earth than anything else. So that's just one. Then there's datacom, right? Connecting the next two to three billion who aren't currently connected to the internet in any kind of substantial way uh, is perhaps the greatest life shift for their capacity to couple the global economy that we've ever seen. No, but what, let, me, let, me, let me reiterate that. I don't know if there's any historical example that has, would, will create such a dramatic shift for as many people in raw numbers or as a percentage of population as connecting the unconnected to the global economy. Because when they're not, they're subsistence farmers that basically have very little options in life. The moment they're connected via broadband, wow, you can do online education. All of MIT's courses are available to you. You could be an entrepreneur. And I believe that the fountainhead of human progress is the cross-pollination of ideas between that are formally not combined, right? That so every good idea is a recombination of prior ideas. It's a very simple model. It leads to a combinatorial expansion over time in idea space. And uh, that is synonymous with progress, in my opinion. And the more humans you have contributing to that global dialogue, the better. So the internet was a huge step forward. I think connecting the rest of the population to the internet will be enormous in ways that we can't even imagine. But the proxy or the, the downstream effect would be more entrepreneurial fervent over the next 10 years as any historical period. That's what you would expect to see from this as it rolls out. And rolls out more quickly than any forecasters were imagining prior to Starlink coming around. Then there's, of course, GPS, all the geolocation services, other variants on that that, that are in development. Um, humanity, I mean, like, imagine if you couldn't know where you are with your car. I mean, like, think of how much we take that for granted today. Uh, you know, a little check mark for space. <laughs> Don't forget those, um, right? And, and more to come. Our, so anyway, you know. The days soon, of our Thomas, Thomas brother map books, <laughs> right? I used to have maps, physical paper maps. Of in course. My car. Door. Of course. Like, why was that map size, that little door <laughs> shelf, right? That, that you can store stuff. Like, uh, where am I heading? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Crazy. 
And, you know, and not to mention the fact that we know that intelligence is evenly and creativity are evenly distributed amongst human populations. And just the notion of casting a wide net because we don't know who, what great minds we're missing out on by not having all these people connected, right? It's going to accelerate all these things, of course. The Einsteins of the world and the Dysons, you name it, are all equally distributed. They just don't have equal access to information. Opportunity is not evenly distributed, but creativity and intelligence are. And I think that this goes a long ways towards helping distribute that opportunity uh, to participate, as you said. Um, I'd like to spend a few minutes before we move into Q&A here on... uh, uh, challenges and opportunities, especially around the um, positive collaborations and perhaps tensions between global governments and the private space industry, as we talk about developing um, space to start probably cislunar and lunar um, for both governance and commerce, because that's what we're talking about here and very much the way when humans expand, they bring their governance systems with them and they establish what uh, commerce systems they're going to use. What are your thoughts on where we're at and where we could go that would be less than helpful and where we might go that would be more helpful for more, more people? Hmm. Oh, I well, know that's broad and I don't want to put you on the spot with government. No, right? no, no, considering... no, 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 it's not that spot. Yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> could you philosophically figure out governance, uh, human nature, scalability and how could we do it better you know the next time around like whoa those are some deep yeah. questions for which i may take note take notes everybody steve's about to share the <laughs> answer with us <laughs> that sentence ends with well i may not be qualified to give you an opinion you want to listen to so, um, as a as a person involved in the private space sector right. one of the i guess spacex is the largest well maybe ul i don't know uh, but one of the largest for sure you know certainly you've been thinking about some of these things well, no and yes. No in the sense that it's not, you know, squarely in the crosshairs of the past 10 years of, you know, business development. I mean, you know, regulatory involvement, government relations, government as a customer, sure. But if I was understanding your questions of like the moon, Mars, celestial bodies, you know, other than, you know, the Outer Space Treaty and, you know, the failed moon treaty um, and the U.S., you know, doing its own legal, uh, you know, how should we, uh, protocols, that may or may not be adopted by others. There's a bit of ambiguity, and yeah. um, you know what you might want to avoid is a land grab, um, territorial. How shall we put it? Scramble on the moon. You'd love to see. Uh, you'd love to see it. Well, put it this way. You'd like to see a lot of things. It's not clear how we get there from here. Uh, things I'd like to see. So let me just jump to the other side of this. Sure. Uh, would be. Uh, <laughs> My own pet project uh, preference would be some unregulated zones on the moon, like on the far side in a crater, test nuclear reactors, do whatever you want. You know, it'd be nice to have a lack of regulation in certain areas, especially when you don't have a water table or an atmosphere or things that uh, that uh, are a commons that are, you know, planet or sort of across the entire moon or across the, well, Mars is more complicated. Um, Human like skunk see, works, if you will. Yeah, yeah, because basically the rate at which you can run experiments is the rate at which you learn as a culture and a society. So when it comes to governance, for example, I would rather see multiple experiments like charter cities with governance modalities, right? You know, at smaller scales, things look a little different than when you have a million people, right? Do you need to have an autocratic society? Do you need to have a non-capitalistic allocation of resources when you only have 10 people and you don't want one person with a monopoly on air? Sort of simple thought experiments of like, what, how is it going to work? How are you going to transition from small 
you know, outpost-sized elements to flourishing human civilization, could you set up a better constitution for self-governance than, than past experiments? These things take decades sometimes to unfold and to unpack in terms of their implications, right? The unintended uh, consequences of various governance modalities. So it's a rich area for discussion. I don't know that uh, that I have the answers, um, but it's also not clear that any one company should be, you know, figuring that out solely. Uh, you know, we would be participant in such a dialogue, but wouldn't necessarily be the sole determinants of it. Um, I think having some big unsolved issues is fascinating. Um, I think human nature and self-governance is one of the more complicated ones um, for the typical engineer in me. And other things like, well, shoot, maybe first, I'd love to see someone figure out if mammalian reproduction works in Martian gravity. Hmm, wouldn't that be nice to figure out? That might only cost $10 million to figure out uh, if it's a positive answer. How about lunar gravity? And if it doesn't, then you finally have an argument for you know spinning one, one G off-world um, stations. If it does work, yeah, it's not so obvious why you need those. Right. And Mars becomes a lot more interesting as your top destination for human uh, settlement off world, at least to start um, for a variety of reasons. It's like, the, you know, the 1G argument is like the most compelling reason I can see for spinning a uh, station off world. Um, you know, the other secondary distant second is location. You can pick where you put those things, but there's a huge trade off for, you know, getting the mass to that location. So I, I digress. Um, so I think we have. Quite simply, just a lot of survival challenges, radiation shielding, growing food, um, energy. Um, obviously, you know, fission and fusion is the answer. I mean, it's, it's just like so obvious. And of course, solar, but you're going to need both. Um, maybe some some Stirling engines running off temperature differentials, especially on the moon. But um, but there's a lot of things to solve, you know. You know, a lot of things. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, no one person, no one company can solve it all, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. I, that was a good answer. Thank you for that. Um, and I, I tend to agree with everything you just said. Uh, it's hard. Like software, hardware, they're easy. Humans are hard. And, uh, just look at Biosphere. Uh, you know, people spinning on each too. other and like, like, going, <laughs> like going nuts trying to make alcohol. And like, you know, it's, like, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, we're going to shift over to uh, Q&A. Uh, I know we've had some questions come in, so we're going to ask Kat to uh, call on people based oh, wow. on her curation of those questions. If you have questions, put them in chat. Kat's going to look at them and she is going to um, call on your name and ask you to uh, ask your question. So Kat, who do we have first? Um, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Steve. The first one is Alder. Alder, are you here ready to voice your question? Now, before Alder voices his question, I'd like to say, those of you interested, uh, check out Twitter, Small Steps and Giant Leaps. Alder has built over the last several years a ginormous community of space enthusiasts, tens of thousands of people. So uh, check him out on Twitter and uh, they do regular get togethers in person and spaces. So it's just a great place to hang out if you're into space stuff. So Alder, please go ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Well, I, I do have you to blame for small steps and giant leaps, but um, <laughs> that, that's a story for another time. Um, hey, Steve, um, I am curious, what is the, well, you've got this great thing behind you, this great, you know, collection. What is something from the current space race or the future space race that you're looking forward to adding to your collection? Ooh, that's good question. A question. Um, yeah. So, 
<laughs> first, so first off, things that jump to mind, like in general, the one thing I'm still trying to find, if anyone knows how to get hold of one of these, is an F1 injector plate from Saturn V. But that's just a peculiar thing. I'd love to have, I tried to get negotiate one with Jeff Bezos when he was pulling the, the flown ones from the ocean, but uh, didn't get one. Uh, I have, just FYI, uh, a couple of fun things. I have the um, uh, panel that covers the drogue shoots and has the SpaceX logo on it from the DM2 mission. So the first flight of humans that SpaceX ever did, it's the thing that has to pop off with these, uh, actually I have one of these springs broke off, so I have it here. It has these gorgeous solid titanium springs. It has three of these things on it, and then it's a carbon fiber plate and it popped off, uh, of course, as it landed, before it landed in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's sort of the mission critical logo thing that was you know at station for months and then popped off and floated on the Gulf of Mexico and was recovered by a fisherman. Um, so there's that. And I also have one, Planet, <laughs> this is a funny thing, Planet Labs full dove, uh, fully operational, that flew suborbitally. And I like that, I like that as a sort of a joking little prompt. It's like, what do you mean flew suborbitally? So there was an Antares explosion, a night launch, a glorious night launch that just exploded with fully fueled just off the pad. And uh, everyone thought it was a complete loss of payloads because the fireball was indescribably large. But the next morning on Twitter, a satellite tweeted, yo, and this was this brief period, there's a few months where Planet Labs um, had the satellites when they detected the sun, on their solar panels, that means they've been ejected from the nanoracks, you know, sort of spring-loaded container, and they're in orbit, presumably. Uh, they then connect versus an S-band radio link, however they can find one, and tweet on Twitter their existence. And so after this explosion, there's this tweet, yo, which at first people thought, engineers thought it was a joke. Uh, so this thing basically had landed freely just on the beach. And when the sun rose the next morning, because remember it was a night launch, it thought everything was normal and it was taking images from the beach. Uh, and it's basically unharmed, which is a fascinating you know, reference on, you know, small masses um, being a bit more robust to vibration and shock than, and so I love it as a suborbitally flown planet dove. Because um, normally they don't, they don't come back from orbit in any piece that you could use. Uh, so what am I, I don't have an answer for that yet, other than I'd love a Merlin engine, you know, like if I'm, if I'm like Christmas shopping, you know, I'd love a Merlin engine. They're big. I've seen some amazing tables at, you know, at Elon's house, he has a dining table with two of them and a big glass plate between them. The same at the uh, McGregor facility. When you walk in, there's a lovely sort of coffee table set on top of a Merlin engine. Um, you know, a grid fin would be kind of nice. They're big. They, they make a wonderful table. So at, at, at Hawthorne uh, headquarters, there's a glass on top of one of those uh, right at the uh, lobby. Um, you know, don't have a read on these yet. Um, there is a Falcon 1 in storage. Uh, you know, I, I sort of made the overtures that, you know, someone should have a Falcon 1. Um, uh, you know, it sort of reminds <laughs> us that there's a fully functional one that didn't fly because, you know, it's no longer cost effective to fly small sat launch vehicles. Um, I want to see Jen's reaction to you <laughs> when you say you want a big rocket for the next thing. Oh, I know. Like, where would it go? Like, by, oh, right. right. The reason all this is in the office is my wife. Yes, does not yes. Think it's <laughs> Uh, and I've tried very hard uh, to sneak things into the home, but usually it's like, nope, that's not for the and, living room. And yeah. she's a real sweetheart. So it really had to hit a critical mass before Jen finally said something. That's right. That's right. There are a few meteorites, hey. because that could be artistic, but, but yeah. yeah, large engines, not so much. Uh, other questions, Kat? Thank you, Alder. Sure. Uh, we have a question from Martina Di Mosca. Are you here, Martina? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for this amazing um, contribution to all of us. I really appreciate it, Steve. So I'm a big advocate of bringing talent together, despite ITAR and other systems in place, placing a bigger barrier of entry for international talent. 
as you might know. Now, after the pandemic, everyone is doing uh, remote work and still we can somehow bypass ITER. So I'm really curious, what's the best <laughs> way possible for prospective talent from developing countries to potentially join the commercial space sector like SpaceX because it's offering us so much and that's how we can develop, impact and influence other regions, our regions that never had access to space resources, knowledge, infrastructure, etc. And we can aid them by mutually benefiting, building for space, but also bringing back to Earth and our society. Thank you. Right. No, that's a very interesting question. So, well, the reason I'm pausing is I don't think I've ever been asked any variant of that question. Um, so it's de novo. And the one thing that, of course, jumps to mind, if I fail to mention it, is I don't think bypassing ITAR is the language you want to use in the question. Um, <laughs> meaning, I don't think if there's a law that involves criminal implications that you want to route around it as much as understand its constraints, you know, routing around meaning, but not going in, in violation of it, right? So just be, be clear. Yes, absolutely. Now, yes, what that's I what don't I meant know <laughs> is to what extent you can outsource um, modules of work don't touch ITAR sensitive material and thereby engage, you know, creative workforces that that would, you know, be available globally. Um, so first has to do with, you know, to what extent can work be work from home, as you mentioned, right? So there's some things that really require going into the office, if you will, going into the rocket factory where you're building things, interacting with others. So there's a slight gravitational counterpoint when you're building physical things that um, other than the software stack, there's a reason people are coming to the, the local location. And even for the software developers to have a close uh, communication loop with the hardware team is important. And partitioning information where, you know, ITAR sensitive stuff isn't shared, you know, it just gets a little more complicated. Um, so what I wonder about is partitioning subsystems that are clearly differentiable. So imagine like all those problems that needed solving in Mars colonization. Well, clearly if you're working on, you know, food or radiation shielding or certain other things, you're not needing to be privy to all of the sensitive stuff that might be going on within a large company, let's say like SpaceX. Um, and, you know, better radios, you know, software-defined radios. There's, I know there's startups focusing on that, for example. Like one of the things SpaceX learned was that everyone else was using these really crappy analog radios that go way back, cost $200,000 for docking the docking the ISS. It's like, why in the world would you use those radios and pay that price to a monopolist who's just living off an old radio? If you do a digital software-defined radio, we have you know, much better eye diagrams, much better, you know, in a sense, quality of signal and, uh, you know, like $5,000 instead of $200,000. So, um, there's lots of things that people could work on that would contribute to the mission, if you will, depending on what your passion is. Um, and there are, like, for example, Planet Labs was founded by at least two out of the three founders were not U.S. nationals. So there's a lot of good work you can do without running a file of ITAR um, as an entrepreneur. And uh, hmm, let me think what else I might have to offer there. Generally speaking, uh, you know, again, with the connectivity that the world provides, you, I think you're hitting an interesting point, which is you're enabling a lot of people to be innovative. How can they actually tap into that global economy in this domain when there are rules like ITAR that limit the fungibility of human talent? Um, that I think is the, the crux of the question. Um, and I don't have a good answer for it. Good Those question. Thank you yeah. for that. We need so answers. Much. Kat, another question, please. Um, right, we have Angela, who unfortunately cannot talk, so I'm going to voice her question for her. Um, sure. Angela Han, founder of Amora Alliance, startup space travel consulting firm located in Canada, 
And her question is, with the current high cost of being a private astronaut to the ISS or space travel in general, where uh, when do you foresee a significant drop in prices, making space truly accessible to everyone everywhere? That's a great question. I, um, I sympathize with the question because if you think out long enough, it should be lower cost. Um, I can't. So the quick answer is I can't say because those decisions would be, you know, as costs come down. And you know, think about the demand and supply curve. What would be the ideal pricing if you were making the decision that you would want to charge when you can only do so many for now and and such? So, for example, Polaris Dawn mission is flying, you know, I think it's April scheduled, uh, certainly this year, um, pushing humans to you know farther Earth orbits than they've ever been seen before. Um, and Jared Isaacson and, Isaacson and others are you know blazing interesting trails there. But you're right. There's the the as price comes down. The demand is elastic and there's an enormous number of people, myself included, who fully intend to fly in the future. So what you could imagine is, well, I don't know about this year or next year, but how about 20 years from now? And by the way, 20 years from now is like infinitely far in the future, right? Like a lot of stuff. And if you think about things, let's say that Elon has shared that are very thought provoking, that with Starship, you know, depreciation and fuel costs are the primary cost elements. Uh, this is something that... Uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke even realized, you know, back in the 60s, it's like it shouldn't be so expensive to fly to the moon, Mars, and other destinations once you have full reusability. Uh, the extent to which that is dramatically different than today is seen in some of the point-to-point -point human transport comments that Elon's made, that not only should it be less if your distance is far enough, let's say, between New York and Tokyo or something, uh, to fly into orbit and back down again than to fly commercial uh, or to buy, to buy a jet. But, but his point is it would per seat should be less than a commercial ticket today or an airline, which is really hard to get your head around to have a little orbital mission for less than the cost of a coach class ticket um, around the world. So if that future, if pricing correlates with cost, that's the unknown. When does that happen? Um, that starts to become much more affordable, right? And that's, and it, it's so foreign from where we are today, where you had, you know, air flight, which has become commercialized and commoditized, and we understand pricing there, and rockets, which used to be, you know, really a rarefied domain of nation states, you know, billionaires and the equivalent of people who, who think they're a nation state, um, and, and not available, you know, except in the most bizarre corner cases to average people who just want to do it, right? And I think we will enter an era where that becomes more commercial. You're not sending a million people to Mars without having gone through that transition um, in terms of cost per person. Uh, and so my quick answer is I have no idea what happens this year or next year. There will be progress. Think about Starship flying. That's progress. Uh, the experience, because Starship itself is kind of like a station. You don't necessarily need to have a destination to have a really cool experience. Um, so yeah, this bottleneck of the ISS being, you know, you know, if you will, a place you have to get to to have a space experience right now. Um, the alternative being, of course, a free-flying dragon. Um, but that's going to open up quite dramatically once Starship's regularly flying. So again, your timelines, when does that happen? When does it, you know, become human rated? Those are all movie factors into that decision. So as with everything, with all the the it is much easier for me to describe what happens 500 years from now than five years from now. In five months from now, I have no idea. <laughs> with all that fancy space stuff you don't have a crystal ball back there anymore huh well no i do but it's not short term. it's all it's all long term uh, okay it's know. all long term <laughs> thank you good question uh cat another question please we have a few um, more minutes so many good questions it's really really hard to pick um i wonder if dimitri is here and he can voice his yeah. dimitri my good friend thank well, you yeah, for joining thought... today 
Steve. Dimitri Bell. and I have known each other for about 15 years when he was working on his PhD in astrophysics at Caltech. Good to see you today, Dimitri. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. And uh, Steve, good to see you as well. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, question from me would be about uh, uh, high ISP, high stress propulsion. Have you seen any interesting startups or any interesting research coming that uh, looks promising uh, to go beyond chemical combustion for space launch specifically? So not the in-space propulsion, but high ah. thrust, high ISP. Yeah. Are you seeing uh, any? Right, because there's obviously all the... Yes. You know, so all the... All the different, yeah. So most of it's in space that we've seen everything from fusion drives to, of course, a whole bunch of Hall effect thrust variants on, you know, different propellants and 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 such. So again, so many that we didn't invest in any of them. Uh, like literally scores. I mean, like this market map of, you know, water propellants and bipropellants. You know, just tons of stuff for in space. From the surface of Earth, it has been a while. So the main buckets, I'm sure you're fully aware of, of course, are the, you know, the spin launch or railgun-like approaches that are, you know, hoping to remove a stage. Unfortunately, so far, they still seem to be two-stage rockets. So a whole different developmental challenge there with, you know, orthogonal G-loading and actual cost savings if you're launching a two-stage rocket. Um, did not take a serious look at those. Not Again, just, just be didn't not 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 casting any shade or disparaging comments just don't know i don't know uh how they're doing um but that's a category the other one the only one that like caught my attention to be like whoa that's totally different um i think it's gone under by now um it's called i think escape dynamics in colorado love the oh, idea wait, of, that's uh, my so dimitri was the founder of escape dynamics well, there you go. Steve. so <laughs> <laughs> i was about to say that was the closest this was thing his, to an interesting novel approach Caltech. i've ever seen um, right, yeah. and so that was his that work me, at Caltech for his PhD. Example, yeah, <laughs> a great example of novel thinking. Let's not have any chemical propulsion. Um, I wish there were scores of others that not actually not scores, and then we would invest in them. I wish there was precisely one or two, um, uh, you know, people pursuing thing or, or companies pursuing some idea like that to see if you know a gigawatt generator uh, or energy source coupled with an array of antenna could beam the energy needed for launch. Right, and that changes everything. So. I commend you and, and applaud that. And maybe the question, therefore, that's why I asked the question, but that's that's what comes to mind. Um, uh, I mean, they see anything else. Let me just make sure I'm not missing anything. No. And again, don't take that as, oh, that's necessarily a um, referendum on the entrepreneurial market because my sample selection uh, may have biases like if someone in whatever they're doing thinks spacex is their biggest competitor maybe they wouldn't want to send it to me so there's quite possibly a variety of things that i'm unaware of thanks thank you dimitri another fine question and thank you all for these great questions that you've had today we've run out of time uh, but we appreciate that all of you have come in today and spent some time with us and we hope you found it interesting delightful um, maybe you learned a few things and had a good time. Uh, Steve, thank you as always so much. Always good to see you and always good to talk to you and, and have you share your journey, your experience and thoughts on uh, something that is so meaningful for everyone alive today and everyone who will ever live. Uh, this is quite a <laughs> no, moment. It is, if you think about it. I mean, it. that's the quote I'm going to pull from this. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true uh, because this is such a moment. Everyone who it's ever are, lives will be affected guys. by these things we're talking about. So, um, so it's it you know, definitely because it struck me. I was just so like, "Whoa, that's a strong statement." But you are right. People working in this field are forging a future 
in a way that humanity couldn't in the past and for which uh, it, it's kind of like the greatest hits of human evolution and progress, like the opposable thumb and like, a, you know, frontal lobe, like <laughs> becoming a multi-planetary species and um, transitioning off world uh, as, as this, you know, you know, as a vector of propagating intelligence to the universe, like this is a major moment. And sometimes we may not realize we're in the middle of it. Absolutely. Exciting, major, um, and fun, often fun. So Great. thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy day and sharing with us today. Uh, we look forward to uh, potentially having you again um, in the future sometime uh, here on a warm poll. So Great. Hey, folks, again, thank you all for being here with us today. Thanks to Trillium Technologies. Um, also, uh, we want to share that applications are open for the FDLX and FDL Europe 2024 programs. You can learn more at FDL.ai for the U.S. side and FDLEurope.org um, for the European Space Agency side of things. There's going to be an information session on 25th of February, uh, 25th of January today. Uh, and February 1st to hear from uh, FDL alumni, the postdocs who have participated in domains such as heliophysics and astronaut health and planetary protection and, and so much more. So go to FDL.ai or FDLEurope.org to learn more about those two things. That date, just saying that out loud, just reminded me that yesterday would have been the 40-year anniversary of uh, the Macintosh launching, Steve. That's something that had a moment just like the apple II did for both of our lives so did that moment in 1984 with the launch of that particular technology now i feel old but uh, it is what it is as they say so <laughs> thank you all thank you steve and we'll look forward to seeing you next week uh, because next week of course we will be hosting uh, erica wagner um, from blue origin she is the uh, senior director of emerging market development at blue origin she's incredibly insightful and so accomplished. You won't want to miss being able to spend some time with Erica. We'll see you next week, Wednesday, the 31st at 8 a.m. Steve, we'll see you around town. Thanks. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Take care. Bye, everybody.